So tonight we are getting into the narrative proper of John. We have spent several months discussing the prologue of the Gospel of John because the prologue, as we've said many times, is one of the most theologically dense and rich pieces of Scripture in the entire Bible. So we took our time through it um, and we spent a lot of time delving into the, the very rich theological tapestry that is that prologue. And remember, the prologue sets us up for the rest of the gospel, and the rest of the gospel, primarily, its primary function and the thesis of the gospel is to be an evangelistic work, a piece of scripture that tells us who Jesus is and tries to convince us to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the great I am, that he is the Messiah, that he is the creator of the universe. So that is what the Gospel of John is trying to convince us of and tell us about. Um, that's the whole point of it. That's, that's what the narrative serves to do. As we said uh, last week and throughout our time, it's not that the Gospel of John, or the Gospel of John is different than the other Gospels, the synoptics, because those Gospels are attempting to tell a historical story about Jesus. They're attempting to get the narrative correct. So you can be assured that when you read Luke or Matthew, the order of the events are the correct order of events, and they are exactly how they happened. They're being recorded um, kind of as an accurate account for the readers. Whereas John is something a little different. It is more of a mystical and a spiritual gospel. Um, the events that happen in John, of course, are true and happened as they were written or were written as they happened. However, John kind of plays around. It mismatches events. It plays around with some things to try to communicate some spiritual truths in a different, in a unique way. Uh, most of that is to convince us that Jesus is who he says he is. That's the whole purpose, as we have said over and over, and we will continue to say throughout our study. This is an evangelistic book, so that's what John's purpose is. Um, tonight we are going to discover the first witness of the Gospel of John. There are many motifs in the Gospel, as we've talked about. Uh, one of the primary ones are the seven witnesses and the seven signs as well. And tonight we're going to get into our first witness. <clears throat> so we finished the prologue and now we're in John 1, 19 through 34. Um, we're not going to get through this entire chunk tonight. Um, it probably will take us at least two or three weeks to get through this chunk because there's a lot going on in this chunk. This is the first um, what we call pericope or chunk of scripture that is one cohesive unit after the prologue. So you have 1 through 18, and then we have verses 19 through 34. This is the, the chunk that immediately follows the prologue, and it serves as the beginning of the narrative proper. We have time introduced. We have... Um, the world and the characters of the world being introduced. We have the historical context introduced. Because before the historical context in the prologue was the universe and the beginning of time and creation, right? So we're, we're getting kind of some more concrete places and times. 
And that historical context is specifically first century Israel near Jerusalem. That's where we're beginning. That's where we're grounded in history. The voice of the narrative, so the voice of what, what's happening, it's no longer just a narrative alone, but we have characters having dialogue with each other. And tonight we're going to see those characters are going to be specifically John the Baptist and the priests and the Levites, which those are very specific characters. <clears throat> we have in the prologue, verses 1 through 18, we have John the Baptist introduced to us as kind of this post, or not post, pre-apocalyptic, prophetic, apostolic, kind of big picture character that is framed within the whole Bible. We have John in the prologue, 1 through 18, framed as this um, giant character who, who is crucial to creation, crucial to redemption history and salvation history. And now we're getting John as this real person. We have John as this real individual. He's made manifest in the human history. He's not just some um, ethereal or heady uh, figure, as which, which that kind of distinction is important because that's kind of where John is combating in the gospel. So we have our scene. Our scene is first century Israel outside of Jerusalem, specifically in a place called Bethany in the area of the Jordan River. That's where John is ministering. That's where he's drawing attention. Specifically, he's drawing attention from the Jewish authorities and the people in authority, so the priests and the Levites. Um, his message includes and involves water baptism. <clears throat> However, that's not the primary focus of his ministry. The primary focus of his ministry is to be a witness to Christ. He has been sent, created by God, whoops, to be this witness, and that's his task. So we have um, the prologue, verses 1 through 18, and now that we're into the narrative, we have the introduction of the narrative, the witness of John, and then the first disciples are going to come after that. <clears throat> All right. So our, our big idea that we are going to talk about in this chunk of Scripture, verses 19 through 34, is Jesus' entrance into history, his entrance into Israel and into the world, which, remember, the world is symbolic of all of creation, all of humanity, and it's that thing that God loves that is worth redeeming. Jesus is introduced to us as the sacrificial lamb in this passage, as the offered son of Abraham. That's going to be made clear throughout the whole gospel. So the, John's message, John the Baptist's message, um, is primarily one of a, we're going to see this very clearly, not me, but him. So he's pointing to Jesus, the entirety of his message. His ministry is primarily to point to Jesus. That's the ministry of a witness and should serve, and we'll talk more about this later, 
as a model for Christian ministry, we are to be pointing to Jesus in everything we do. It's not about me, but it's about Jesus. So, getting to the text itself. One important point that we need to talk about is the idea of witness again. The idea of witness. This word witness, which in the Greek here is, again, it's the word marturia, martyr. It is, uh, again, a legal term as literally a legal witness, someone who is called to the stand to give witness to. And we're going to see that played out very clearly tonight. Um, this word martyr or witness frames th- this, this chunk of Scripture. Um, we see at the end in verse... Hold on, let me do this the easy way, maybe... In verse 34, which is the end of this chunk, we have witness again. This word martyr or witness martorio, it's just framed a different way. It's conjugated a different way. That's why it looks a little different. But this is the same word. You can see it here, martyr. So these two framing words, remember we talked about that earlier in our study of John, present to us what's called an inclusio. An inclusio is a statement that's framed by two different things that acts kind of like an English, like parentheses, although that's really not the best way to describe it. But it provides for us a, a, a clue in the text that this is one complete chunk that we should study as a complete chunk. So um, probably one of the best ways we have in English is like a paragraph. You know, a paragraph should be one complete thought or a series of thoughts. And that's kind of what this inclusio does for us. And the word witness is what sets us off or cues us off to this framing and this grammatical structure. Um, This chunk of scripture also gives us a time frame. Um, see, in the prologue, everything's kind of beyond time and kind of big and cosmic. And now we're given days. So this, is, this chunk of Scripture guides us through the first week of Jesus' ministry. We have the first two days presented to us um, of the first week of Jesus' ministry. Day one is verses 19 through 28. And day two is verses 29 through 34. We have two days. So we're starting to be grounded in real time, in history. We're not just talking about the cosmic forces anymore. Now we have the word in the flesh stepping on the scene in real time and in a real place. So, we have... Uh, the verses itself and the structure of the verses. The verses lay out a pattern where we have John being presented and then he says, it's not me, but him. And then we have the Lamb of God presented to us, John's witness to the Lamb, and then the Spirit's witness to the Lamb. We're going to talk about those in order. Okay, so... 
we've been given our spiritual and our cosmic introduction. This verse here gives us our historical introduction. Um, like the synoptics, all of the Gospels begin. So John and all the other Gospels, the ministry of Jesus begins with John the Baptist. And we talked about how important that was. Um, this clearly is an important figure in salvation history because unlike many other important things, some of those important things that the church holds high aren't included in all four Gospels. John happens to be, John the Baptist happens to be one of the few things that are. One of the things we talked about are the virgin birth. The virgin birth is not included in all four Gospels. Um, the angel story to Mary, which is included in the virgin birth, is not included in all four Gospels. But John the Baptist is. Uh, so we should put a lot of importance on John the Baptist, not him himself, but the fact that he's included in this salvation history. It's important. He's a very important and crucial figure, which we've talked about at great length. He is that prophetic witness character, which is required for the word to begin his ministry. <clears throat> so, we have a real prophetic and a real public voice coming forth now in the text. Now let's jump into the text proper. 119. This is the translation done by uh, Edward Klink, who the majority of my material comes from. Professor at Biola when I was there who wrote a fantastic commentary on the Gospel of John. And he is a wonderful Greek professor. So I'm not reading from the ESV right now. This is his particular text. I'll read from the ESV in just a moment. Now, this is the witness of John when the Jews from Jerusalem sent to him priests and Levites in order to ask him, who are you? The ESV writes, this is the testimony of John, which even there we have kind of a, a knock against this translation because it uses testimony instead of witness. Testimony is a much weaker term than witness, than that martyr word. And it frames for us the inclusio, as we said before. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Okay. And uh, we have here the Greek, and then we're going to stick with the English for a moment. We'll go back to the Greek as we need it. So this is the opening of the narrative of the Gospel of John. And the opening narrative begins with the witness, begins with the witness of John the Baptist, and it establishes why witness in the gospel of John is so important. This is one of the key theological components to the gospel. Now, um, an interesting thing, this is a separate witness from what we see in the prologue. <clears throat> Okay, this is not this cosmic witness. This is John witnessing in first century Israel, in Judea. All right? <clears throat> and we know that because the, the verb being used uh, is, which here is, where is it? Esten. 
which is a state of being verb, this is a perfective present, which means it's not something that happened in the past or is ongoing, but it's something that is happening in the historical narrative. And again, this is why Greek is so much more helpful, because it grounds us in different ways. <clears throat> so this is kind of the, where, whereas in the prologue, the witness that John had was this ongoing perpetual witness that, that kind of carries on throughout time. Like we're listening to that witness now as we read the gospel. This witness that's presented is something that happened in history. This happened in Judea at the Jordan River, and this is the first um, propagation of that witness that was talked about in the prologue, that big cosmic witness, right? So this is the, it's just like the word became flesh, this is the witness kind of gaining ground and getting uh, some, some realness to it and, and some historicity to it. So... Um, and furthermore, this is very much a judicial witness. As we talked about, the word witness is very much grounded in the idea of the judicial system, as in a judge and a jury and accusers and those who are being tried. So this is what's going to happen here. We have the witness is about to be cross-examined by an accuser. All right, and we have the Levites and the priests as the accusers cross-examining and questioning the witness who is John. So this scene is presented to us with lots of lawsuit imagery and courtroom imagery and very um, evidence and forensic overtones, right? It has to do with a courtroom. This is a courtroom scene. We should be picturing this like we're watching... A courtroom scene on TV, really. That's, that's kind of what's being presented to us. This is official in nature. The witness of John the Baptist, the person himself, what he's ministering about, it's becoming so big that these priests and Levites, this is an official delegation from Jerusalem, from the ruling party, the ruling religious party of Israel. All right, so he is becoming so big that they sent an official delegation. This is not some people just trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and we know this because of the word sent, because of the Greek word here, sent, which we talked about earlier in the prologue. This is the same word that God sent um, uh, God sent John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, remember, that was about the sender. And this is an official sending. This is a word that would be used if a page were sent from, like, the emperor to a general. This is an official business, an official sending, an official message, or an official questioning. So this is more of a delegation than just, oh, let's go figure out what John's doing. No, the high priest and the, the, the people in charge, the ruling council of the Jews, officially sent the priests and the Levites to figure out what was going on with John, to figure out who he was. When we read the story of John the Baptist, which is good that we think he's small, because... 
The whole point is that it's about Jesus. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. But he was, even when you watch uh, like the TV show The Chosen, he's kind of portrayed as just this crazy guy that everyone's afraid of. And even his disciples are kind of crazy and out there and hippies. And that was not, that, that probably, I mean, he, he was a little crazy, but not in that way. Um, he was crazy like Elijah was crazy, and Samson, and really Jesus. Not in the, oh, we need to stay away from him because he, he's going to, yeah, no thanks. And that's the whole point of this gospel is to, to convince us he wasn't just a popular guy who walked on the road, but he was the son of God. So, um, yeah, this, John the Baptist was a disruptor. He, and, and to be clear, they weren't going to arrest him. That's, they just wanted to figure out what, what he was about. Um, they, they wanted to determine his validity and his message. Um, this is the only place in the Gospel of John where priests and Levites are mentioned, which is interesting because the Jews happen to be an interesting character in the Gospel. And... Because of that, that tells us some things about what's going on. Um, in general, both the priests and the Levites were in the lower ranks of the clergy and the ruling class. Uh, priests were not in high social status, um, and the Levites were lower. These were people, like the Levites were not taking part in sacrifice, um, they were the ones who provided, who, who were the musicians, the doormen, and the police force of the temple. That's what the Levites were. And the priests were not much more above that. They, they were, when you see priests and Levites, it's talking about, um, in modern church setting, it would be something like a deacon and not even the elders, but, but somebody who, you know, is just below middle management, as it were. Uh, so these people, <clears throat> it, it kind of shows that because they sent these lower class people, they didn't go send out the Pharisees. In fact, in the, I think it's in the Chosen, they have like one of the high ranking priests goes to watch John. That wasn't the case just yet, um, which tells us that they were not really angry with John. They were just wanted to see what was going on. There wasn't a contention between John yet. Um, more, more than likely, this is, they, they just wanted to figure out what was going on. They, they wanted to see who he was. That's, that's the question they're going to ask him. Who is he? We have an official sending, an official delegation, and an official question. This is not an informal visit or a visit out of curiosity. This is, um, they were interested, or, or they weren't interested in like just, you know, it, this is very clearly an official visit with religious and political, as you said, implications. It is to be noted, one of the big reasons why is we have to remember at this point in history, it had been many, many years with no prophetic voices in Israel. At least 400 years of no prophetic voices. And then all of a sudden, on the scene, we have a prophetic voice. 
So that was a little scary and unexpected to them, and it would have created quite a stir. Now, um, one important note we have here is we have this word, the Jews. The Jews. The Jews in the fourth gospel serve as, and, and the Jews were the ones, if we look here, sent, these priests and Levites were sent from the Jews from Jerusalem. All right? So we have the Jews. The Jews in the fourth gospel, these serve as the main um, discussion group or party for Jesus, the main interlocutor or antagonist for Jesus was the Jews. So let's talk about the Jews. This is a very important character in the fourth gospel. See, this is another reason why the gospel of John is different from the synoptics. It kind of bulks the Jews into one character that talks with Jesus quite often. And that can take many forms, of course, many characters. But the Jews is probably the most important character outside of Jesus in the gospel because that's who interacts with Jesus the most. And the fact that they're introduced in the first line of the narrative is quite important. The Jews, that title, that name, that word are mentioned in the Gospel of John 71 times. And remember, in the Gospel of John, numbers are important. And the frequency is also important. In the other three synoptic Gospels, this word or this name is only mentioned 17 times total. So John clearly is presenting the Jews as a character and as something to be paid attention to. Over half of these occurrences... Over half of these mentions of the Jews are in conflict scenes. So the Jews are presented as an antagonist who are opposed to Jesus and his ministry. But that's about half. The other half, some Jews appear to be believers. Um, Jesus is called a Jew several times, by the, uh, especially by the Samaritan woman. And... Um, and so it's not just all bad, but, but again, they're portrayed as a specific character. <clears throat> so one thing that we must understand is that let's, let's place this term in the post-apocalyptic context. Obviously, in our day and age, this could draw some ire because of the um, Holocaust notions, and we live in a post-Holocaust world, so we have to, you know, understand that, but... In the first century, those obviously weren't there. <clears throat> so the first century, this would have been the post-Old Testament period, right? So this is outside of the prophetic voice of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, a lot of times Israelite was used, not Jew. And so now, in Jesus' day, in the first century, in Israel, a Jew was somebody who belonged to the ancestry of Israel and the religious community of Judaism, all right? So it was kind of both of those things had to be ticked off in order for it to be called a Jew. Is that anywhere in the Old Testament? What? The Jew? Um, 
Not, well, so this word is specifically a Greek word, and the Greek word here is, where did you go? Right there, iodio. Um, so it's kind of hard to, so this wouldn't have been in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it would have been Israelites. It's always called Israelites, not Jews. Jews is something that comes on the scene after the Old Testament. That's why it's, a, it's definitely a post prophetic age, post-Old Testament word, post-Torah being completed. Yes, David. So that's a good question. When you see Jews, are they referring to strictly those people of the ruling class? No, this is everyone who would have been religiously Jewish, right, um, following the Torah and ancestry of Israel. So a Samaritan who followed the Torah would not be considered a Jew. And um, that's and today even that has changed. Today it's not just you don't have to be both. You just have to have ancestry of Jewish people or of Jewish blood. <coughs> to piggyback off your question, David, you asked if this was just for the religious class. Most often it is used to describe the religious class, but not every time. So it's not a rule. But most often when you see Jews. It is the Jews. It is referring to, it, a lot of the time, it is referring to the official leadership of the Jewish people, which the center is Jerusalem. <clears throat> and again, these are the frequent opponents of Jesus, the, the big negatives that they, um, their, their biggest kind of, Oh, mistakes they made is they defend the letter of the law. They refuse to accept the authority of Jesus and his messianic status. And then after they deny Jesus' kingship, they deny their own status as the people of God. So that's their three big misses. They defend the letter of the law. They refuse to accept the authority of Jesus and after denying the authority of Jesus, deny their own status as God's people. Because Jesus is God, and that's clearly presented to us in the prologue. <clears throat> so, one thing that we must contend with is that John, who is a Jew, is distancing himself and separating himself from the Jewish people. And by the Jewish people, those people who reject the messianic status and authority of Jesus. And the Jews are very firmly placed in the world category. Meaning, as we saw in the prologue, that group of people who needs the light. That group of people who is in darkness. <clears throat> right? These are still creations of God, but they need to be saved. That's one of the things that is very clear by setting them opposite of Jesus. They are in that category who don't recognize the word for who he is. And those who do not recognize the word need to be saved by the word, need to be saved by his mission, right? <clears throat> so... Are they bad guys? No. They are the ones who serve as the uh, 
kind of, really, they're the representatives of the world to Jesus. Jesus is confronting the world through the Jews, which is kind of ironic because their initial purpose was to serve as God's representatives to the world, and now they are serving as the world's representatives to God, and not in a good way, because they are against God, because they are against his Messiah and against his his person, Jesus, right? So, the Jews are a people, obviously, that God loves because God loves all of creation. They are the ones who just represent and interlocute, who discuss things with Jesus. And it's very clear because of that, as we've talked about, the world is not the problem. Sin is the problem. The Jews just exemplify that to Jesus, but they still need a light. They still need that light in the darkness. Um, And an interesting term because John later uses the term, um, where does he use it? In 129, he calls Jesus the Lamb of God, which to the Jewish people would have been a a warning siren like they should have it should have been woo 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 because everything in their religion a lamb is kind of at the center of it right and so the fact that they still did not recognize him is kind of a shame and that's what John is trying to communicate to us so let's get into verse 20 and he confessed and did not de- deny, and he confessed, I am not, that's supposed to be, am, hold on. I am not the Christ. All right. In the ESV, it's very similar. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So that's kind of wordy. It sounds kind of strange because you have kind of three different statements, three different things going on. It's repetitive. And what that does is, again, remember, we are not in just a simple conversation between John and the Jewish delegation, but this is an official delegation, and this is an official courtroom setting where they are cross-examining the witness. So the fact that he is repetitive gives us kind of a serious and a solemn note. And it's important to note that in official documents, confess and not denying are, they go hand in hand. They're not, that's not weird. The weird part is it's positive, negative, and then positive once again. And it's really what it is, is it's John the Baptist making certain that he is not um, misrepresented or misunderstood. He is very clearly giving his statements. And that statement is, I am not the Christ. This is a very emphatic and very clear statement. And with that statement... He is making it very clear that he is not, but another one is. That is the take, big takeaway. He is not, but another one is. 
the declaration about himself is entirely negative, where the other is entirely positive, right? Which that should be kind of how we as Christians should operate. We should um, self, not self-deprecation, self-effacement, us stepping back and kind of taking a position of bowing and lifting up Christ should be the main position, as John had, of Christians. Now, um, an interesting point here is the word Christ or Christos. Now, um, this is certainly and most clearly denoting that this is a messianic term. It means the anointed one. This isn't necessarily an official title here, but for a Jewish person and for the Jews that John was speaking to, it very clearly has messianic connotations. Um, for the Gentile, it's interesting they would use it as a, as a name, as we often do. You know, Jesus Christ, his last name was Christ. And, and that, that is rooted in... In Gentile, the way Gentiles have understood it for years. But this is the title of Christ, the Messiah. <clears throat> okay, and we know that this is talking about Jesus because John, the gospel writer, tells us Jesus Christ in verse 17. So we know that this is about Jesus. This isn't a mystery to us anymore. And John is very clearly separating himself from this individual, from Jesus, by claiming that he is not that. Now, another interesting thing, we are not given the exact question of the interlocutors, of the questioners. They just ask, who are you? They don't ask, you know, are you this person or are you that person? And he very clearly says, I am not the Christ, which highlights the, the, the answer to the question rather than the question itself, which is very important because, again, this is about the answer to the question, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer. That's kind of the repetitive nature of this, although here it's not the Christ, but it's still pointing to Jesus. Is still in denying himself as the Christ. He's pointing to Jesus. So let's talk a little bit about the expectations of the Messiah, of the Messianic figure. Really, there were three main expectations about the Messiah. The three main expectations or hopes, which would have been very high during the time of Jesus because of their historical context and situations. The first would have been a Davidic Messiah. So David come again, that kingly Messiah who brings war and liberation to the enemies of Israel, right? And there's nothing against that in Scripture. Scripture very clearly says that the Messiah is going to bring war on the enemies of Israel. However, the enemies of Israel are not the Philistines or the Romans, but the sin in our hearts. And that's what John presents to us. So that's the Davidic Messiah. 
That was their, one of their expectations and hopes. The second was that it would be a priestly Messiah, a priestly Messiah, one in the vein of Aaron and Ezra, who would rebuild the temple and bring spiritual enlightenment to the people of Israel. So they, they had that expectation. The third was a prophet, a great prophet in the spirit of Moses and Elijah, right? Someone who would bring the words of God and deliverance. Now, it is likely that that Davidic and that priestly Messiah were the most prominent um, expectations of the people of Israel. And more than likely, many Israelites, you know, we've been told that it, it was just that Davidic. Most Israelites probably had something like a mixed or a conglomerate, which that's what Jesus ultimately is. He's a mixture of all three of these. Um, hope of who the Messiah would be, right? They wanted someone to deliver them, but they also wanted spiritual renewal. They wanted to hear from God. Oh, so the question is, do you think, do you think this, the question would have been, or, or the stories would have been kind of publicized about Mary and Elizabeth and their supernatural births? Um, potentially, but probably not, just because the nature of Elizabeth and Mary's, those stories were very secretive and hidden, um, which is not uncommon. In fact, most of, one of the things when you start to, study Judaism, even Orthodox Judaism today, is there is a very intense, uh, not pressure, but system of hiddenness in their culture. For instance, one thing that Jewish women do, even to this day, Orthodox Jewish women, when they are married, they cover their hair. Only their father and their children are allowed to see their hair. Nobody else. And their husband, obviously. Um, and they cover it with a wig. That's right. So if you see a Jewish woman, an Orthodox Jewish woman, let me be clear, an Orthodox Jewish woman, and you see her with hair, it's a wig. That's, that's how it is. And the only people allowed to cut her hair is another woman, her father, or her male sons, or her daughters, obviously. And her male sons, once they're married, they are not allowed to see their mother's hair anymore. It's this... But there's kind of this culture of secrecy and hiddenness, and not in a negative way, like I'm going to hide my sin, but in a private way. It's very secluded and private, and ultimately that reflects to me um, the idea of holiness and set-apartness. So holiness and set is, is very much rooted in boundaries, um, secrecy, and by secret, more of a husband-wife secrecy, not in a, oh, I'm going to go hide my sin in the corner, but in a, oh, I do this thing only with my spouse, that type of secrecy. And so there's, it's, it's as a part of that purity and private culture, I don't think the stories of them would have been promulgated. Well, I think John... The gospel writer is very intentionally not telling us what the question was because he doesn't want us to focus on the question but on the identity of Christ, that John is not the Christ. And so he's crafting for us a narrative where we get to that point through the story. 
Um, but yeah, I do not believe that the stories of Mary, in fact, it probably was, would have been somewhat scandalous to read the Gospel of Luke for a Jewish person. I believe it would have been, yeah, it came much later, but it, it would have been scandalous for them even to read it. It would have been, sorry, I don't mean to say this because I don't like comparing, but it would have been reading like a dirty magazine almost. Like, I don't, I hate that comparison, but it would have been, you, you don't do that. Like, oh, I don't want to read about her birth story or like, ah, no, that's not right. We don't do that. Yeah, Kevin? Marriage was the ultimate. It was supreme. Yes. Oh, to those people, it was very important. It was the most important thing you could do. You were not a man in Hebrew culture and Jewish culture until you were married and had a male son. I'm not kidding. Oh, yeah, that was a part of marriage. That was, if, if, a woman, if a Jewish woman isn't married, that, that rule doesn't apply to her. It's just if you're married. So we have, um, it, it's commonly believed, especially in Christian culture today, that everyone in Israel believed that the Messiah was going to be this warrior king. And that's not the case necessarily. It would have been about half and half. Some people would have believed he was going to be a spiritual leader. Some people a warrior. Like, it would have been a little bit of everything. Um, and, and most people, and we see this because a lot of the Jewish people who accept Jesus were ready to accept Jesus. They didn't accept Jesus as a warrior king. They expected, accepted him as a spiritual renewalist, a spiritual leader, because that's somewhat of what their expectations were. Or a good prophet, exactly right. So, um, but we do know that, that throughout the scriptures, Jesus did not approve of that warrior king, that Davidic expectation necessarily, because that wasn't his mission. Um, in fact, when you know, Peter goes to fight for him, he says, Peter, put your sword away. Stop it. So <clears throat> he is not the Christ. He is not the Christ. And that I am obviously is a very clear uh, connotation as we talked about throughout the prologue, Exodus should be in the back of our mind as we read the Gospel of John. So when you see I am not, it's making a very clear statement um, in terms of the God language or the God title, I am. And Christ later says, I am with no negative. So that's, that's important. Okay. one twenty one, And they asked him, who are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. <clears throat> so now we have the questions given, the important questions, which we weren't given those before. And these questions in 121 are, again, questioning his mission and his purpose with very heated religious and political overtones. The first question is, are you Elijah? Now, this question is rooted in a specific prophetic verse. We're going to look in Malachi. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. 
Uh, we'll actually go ahead and read all from verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And this is the part that they're referencing. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Yes. They are still looking for Elijah, that's right. Um, and then... Let's go back to verse uh, Malachi 3, 1 through 4, where we're going to have another, or this is the first, obviously. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the wave before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So, <clears throat> this, these two passages, God tells the people of Israel that he's going to send them a prophet Elijah. Specifically, in order to turn the hearts of the people so that God doesn't strike the land with a curse. Now, um, this messenger, obviously, the messenger as declared in, in chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi, was considered a forerunner not of the judge, but of the Messiah. Although, they're both, right? And in the later passage in chapter 4, we're told that this is Elijah. Now, this is the background that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is the context and the verse that they presuppose when they talk about John the Baptist. Um, in Matthew and Mark, they tell us that John wore a camel hair tunic and a leather belt, which is what Elijah wore. Um, Luke is very direct. Uh, Zachariah's son will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn people's hearts, which is a direct quotation from those two Malachi passages. Um, even more so in the synoptics, Jesus himself identifies John the Baptist as the promised Elijah. We see that in Matthew eleven fourteen. Matthew eleven fourteen, where we see, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And then in seventeen twelve, we have another statement by Jesus. He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. 
Then we have other passages in Mark 9, 13 and Luke 1, 17. Um, but the Baptist in the Gospel of John denies being Elijah. Why would he deny being Elijah when he clearly is? And the Synoptic Gospels talk about it. Um, I believe he is denying it. He says, I am not. Because again, he is prostrating himself. He is putting himself on the back burner. He is not saying, yes, I am Elijah. I have come to do the things that were promised. Because he is not the one who's coming to do those things. Jesus is coming to do those things. And that's what's so important is Jesus is the focus, not John. So John's witness is very clearly, I am not, but he is. That's the witness of John, and that is the declaration. That's why he says, I am not Elijah. The second question we have is, are you the prophet? And again, this is rooted in that kind of mosaic prophet figure, that leader who um, leads the people into spiritual renewal. <clears throat> and that is, we're going to look at that promise in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. That's Moses speaking. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb. On the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Right, so that prophet is very clearly talking about Jesus, not, not about John. But they're asking, are you that prophet? That's what they say when they say, are you the prophet? And he says, I am not. Or no, again, he is denying the fact that he is not this prophet. He is not the coming Messiah. He is not the one that they should be looking for. Jesus is the one that they should be looking for, which really is the whole point of this dialogue here. Because the Jewish people, even what, you know, my grandma said that, like, they're still looking for Elijah. They hold a seat at Passover Seder for Elijah instead of for Jesus, right? That's the big miss. They're looking for the messenger, not the king that's coming, and that's what John is very clearly telling us. I am not. He is. So this is a very strong negative to the prophetic work, to the power of John. He is not the one who brings power. Jesus is that one. So the next question they give Finally, they said to him, who are you? In order that we may give an answer to those who sent us, what do you say about yourself? So we have kind of the ending of the question with this finally. Um, it's a specific conjunction that is translated finally. After receiving negative questions to all their answers, they want to hear... 
what he thinks. They want to hear what he thinks about himself. They need a positive statement to report to their superiors, which, again, is a clear sign, once again, that this is an official delegation. And this is what's nice about narrative is sometimes there's not a lot going on, so we get to skip ahead. And his answer, and this one is very much a deep, and this is probably where we'll end. He said, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. This is a gut punch statement, if there ever was one. The witness of John the Baptist can only be a voice of the prophet's. But once again, he is no more than a voice. It's interesting that this passage is used because it's a voice. It's not, I am a prophet crying out, but I'm a voice crying out. This citation is Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah is one of the most important messianic prophetic voice or books and works. Isaiah 43, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. <clears throat> this text is important because it is used in all the synoptics as well to describe the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. So once again, when you see something in all four Gospels, it's probably important and something we should pay attention to. Isaiah 43, 40, verse 3, is one of those things. Um, it is also significant, so we have um, John the Baptist being kind of stepping back and stepping back and stepping back and making himself smaller, and then all of a sudden he goes big and says, about himself, I am a voice. So he talks about himself in the positive here. <clears throat> Why is that important? Because it is, one, talking in terms of the prophet. So by using Isaiah the prophet, he is locating himself in salvation history. So he is not just saying, look at me. He's saying, look, I am in line with what God has been doing, and this is the same message that Isaiah spoke that I speak now. So he's not just making himself big after making himself small, but he's actually placing himself in salvation history by using this passage. And by quoting and saying, Isaiah said this, right? He's placing himself in God's picture and in God's hands, not, or God's message, not a message of his own, right? Um, again, the wilderness is gonna harken back and tell us about exile, it's going to tell us about exodus, that's what you should hear when you hear wilderness, not just the fact that John did stuff in the desert, but the fact when you hear wilderness, you should always think exodus and the exile. <clears throat> so, this is to connect him also, connect the mission of Jesus to the coming of the kingdom of God to the coming of salvation, just like the Exodus did. Furthermore, um, the other big important part of this is this quotation does not give any prominence or importance 
to the person about whom it speaks. So the voice isn't the important part. The Lord is the important part in this message, which in this case is the word, Jesus, and the word's activities. That word makes straight the way of the Lord emphasizes that the Baptist, that John's real and true purpose and his true mission is not to be a teacher, but to be an introducer. He introduces people to the word. He makes straight the path. He's not the one teaching. He's the one who's introducing and witnessing to the word. It's the word that is central to John's message. And also the promise that God gives in Isaiah. Now, unlike the other Gospels, uh, the Gos- Isaiah is only quoted two times in the Gospel of John. Here in verse 123 and again in, ver- in John chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, where Isaiah is named three times by Jesus, which is kind of a discussion in John 12 about the fulfillment of those prophecies in relation to the public ministry of Jesus, which is also interesting because that forms another inclusio, because at the end of John 12 is the end of Jesus's public ministry in the gospel of John. And from that point forward, we have the triumphant entry and the beginning of Passion Week and the passion narrative starts in verse 12, or in chapter 12. So you have Isaiah the prophet declaring the public ministry of Jesus Christ in verse 123 and concluding in John 12, 38 through 41. That's kind of cool. <laughs> so we have the prophet Isaiah as the framer for Jesus' work. Um, and once again, so, so we talked about how if something is mentioned a lot, it's important, but it's also kind of the reverse is true, especially from prophetic quotes. If something is mentioned sparingly, it's also important um, because it's, it's, it's poignant and it's, it's uh, the fact that he uses Isaiah means it's really important. And as we said, this is framing the public ministry of Jesus and the eschatological, the salvation history promises that the prophet Isaiah gives us in his work. John 12, 38 through 41. John 12, 38 through 41, which is really John 12 is the conclusion of Jesus's um, public ministry. We have, that is the, where is that? Uh, John 12, 38 through 41 is John himself kind of musing and contemplating the prophet Isaiah and the people of Jesus, or in Jesus' ministry. And then right after that, we have Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We have, and the, the, the large discourse of Jesus and his disciples right before he dies happens after this. So the, the public ministry ends in John chapter 12, 38 and 41, 
and the private ministry of Jesus and his disciples in the upper room before his death begins in, uh, after John 12, 41. So you have kind of, again, those parentheses or that paragraph. This is the public ministry, and it's framed by these prophecies of Isaiah. So any questions or thoughts thus far on the narrative? All right. Well, with that, we will conclude because that's a good spot to end because um, next we will jump into a discussion of the Pharisees because that's the next passage. So with that, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, thank you for tonight. I pray that you would continue to give us wisdom throughout our week. I pray that you'd bless us, keep us safe, keep us healthy. Give us your word and give us the power of your spirit to do all the work you've called us to do. Help us to preach the gospel well, to speak to people about Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.